0: Heterodorks! Heteroducks dorks! Hey, turfs and trannies! You're listening to Heterodorks, and I am Nina Paley, your co host.
1: And I am Corinna Cohn, your other co host. And we have a guest heterodork with us today. You may know her as Elizabeth Hungerford, or as she is known to her friends, Bess. And she is an attorney and a feminist and has been writing about issues that uh, relate to the intersection of gender identity and uh, women's rights for at least a decade. And we are so honored to have her with us here today. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Good evening. So happy to be here.
1: I thought that I would get things going by explaining to people that one of the reasons that you made might have heard of our guest today is that she was the co-author on a letter to the United Nations on the, their gender identity legislation. And back before there was a such such thing as the Turf Wars, you might consider that one of the first shots that was fired was a letter that was co-authored by Kathy Brennan and Bess Hungerford appealing to the United Nations to have a more nuanced take on gender identity. Can you explain that letter a little bit?
2: Yeah. So um, the UN letter, they do kind of an annual call, the uh, Commission for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And Kathy Brennan uh, approached me, this was back in uh, 2011, And she had been following sort of this legislative trend around adding gender identity to existing state statutory schemes for anti-discrimination. And she recognized that the addition of gender identity was actually being used as a replacement for sex in certain cases. You know, and, and so I looked at what she was bringing to me and I was like, I can see the problem right away. I know you're all familiar with now but at the time it was something that people weren't talking about and so we put together this letter to the united nations and i don't think that they ever read the letter or maybe they did but we never heard back from them Um, however we put it on the internet and it got a lot of attention a lot of negative attention mostly because you know calling us transphobic and hating trans people You know, we were very clear in the letter that we support anti-discrimination protections for trans people, but not at the expense of sex-segregated spaces for females. And interestingly, I mean, 10 years on, I feel like from a legal perspective that my views are still very much in line with that UN letter that we wrote about 10 years ago.
1: I think one of the things that's quaint in it is... You say, well, there's there's really no reason that we need to define the term sex because it's really well understood what sex is. Yes, the plain
2: meaning. <laughs> the, plain meaning, the, the, plain meaning. the plain meaning of
1: sex. The plain meaning. Yes. And in only ten years it's become some somehow we have been convinced to have debates about even the plain meaning of the word sex.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty stunning. And you know, my my view is that, you know, gender identity can be protected in the law as long as it doesn't override sex. As long as it isn't a replacement for sex because there are, you know, there's are there's sites of sex segregation that are really important to women. And I don't think se- sex can just be sex and and gender identity I think can be something else, but it can't be sex because of course we all know the plain meaning of sex
1: well I I guess there's really no plain meaning of gender identity though (laughs) and one of the reasons why there's now a debate about whether we should be using sex or gender identity is because without there being a a really clear and agreed-upon definition of gender identity when people say that it's sex there's there's not really anything that we can go back on and say well that's that's not really the definition that we all agreed on before because we we don't have one.
2: Yes, well, and even now people debate the meaning of sex. It's a, it's a spectrum, and it can be you know broken down into all of these different characteristics, right? But gender identity, uh, it really has to st- it has to stand separately in the law. That's just that's. That's what that's the point of the UN letter. And that's, you know, what I what I still think now. And I if I might introduce the Bostock case to our discussion, you know, what I think is so interesting about the decision, the Supreme Court's decision is that line that it drew in protecting people. The term that the Supreme Court used was transgender status, not gender identity which I think could be significant in itself, but they were very clear to carve out or set aside and, and say we are not ruling on sex segregated spaces, such as bathrooms and locker rooms in the employment context. And I think it's, it's just remarkable that they highlighted that line for us legally because that is precisely where i would like it to be in the future in an ideal an ideal world you so you were very happy with that decision i I I read
0: a little bit of your writing after that and this this is the case yeah this is the case that i still have not completely come to understand what it all means this was this involved the funeral home employee the male funeral home employee who uh, was trans identified and fired and sued his company. And I had an argument with Corinna on this podcast where I said that he was he was not fired because he was trans, but he was fired because he was male, but wearing the women's dress coded costume. And I still don't understand what all of this was about.
2: well it's a very uh it's not easy to understand and um i think the fact there about whether uh, harris was trying to violate the sex-based dress code or use the women's bathroom um, really changes a lot about one's view potentially about the case and the the court limits the facts that it reviews in the case. And the Supreme Court in particular takes, let's take a very narrow question. They don't like to rule outside of anything that you don't have to. So in this case, the facts that they were ruling on was simply that um, Harris announced to his employer that he would be transitioning. And the employer said, the funeral home, said, well, don't come back to work. And so they admitted, you know, yes, we fired you because you said that you were trans. And the other two cases that that case, or that Harris was combined with to become Bostock, the Bostock decision, um, the employers also said, yes, we fired you because you were gay. And we think that that's legal. We think that's okay. We think that's acceptable. Under Title VII, we're allowed to do that. So this case, they, they, blobbed together yes
0: trans and gay yeah i mean yeah that's
2: too bad yes right yeah you you're pointing to something that a lot of people disagree with which is that combination of sexual orientation and gender identity or soji yeah lots of people want to separate those and that's like that, get the get the l out or lgb no t separate them Treat them differently.
0: I was at that event in D.C. a couple years ago, where some feminists spoke at the Heritage Foundation, and the Heritage Foundation was sharing a booklet about Sogi, or is it Sogi or Soji?
2: Sogi. I say Soji, but you know, other people probably say. Say it differently it's like gif or jif anyway after that a, <laughs> a
0: very friendly conservative asked us left-leaning types if there was any way they could help and i said could you stop using the phrase soggy like if people on the left aren't going to separate them out maybe people on the right could separate them out you know, separate out gender identity from sexual orientation because the fact that they're conflated is, to me, a
2: mess. It is because they're very different things and uh, conservatives are generally not supportive of homosexual rights. So how did, what, what was the response to that? Uh, there was none.
0: That was just what I thought of. Like, I gave it real thought But that does seem like something that people on the right could do that would be helpful since people on the left are refusing to do it. But they haven't done it either. And, like, why not? Why haven't they done it either? When they know full well, at least the people that were in attendance there, they know full well that these are different things.
2: They do. I think they're opposed to both of them, however.
0: I'm not, you know, I'm not sure... Like there's a lot of not a lot, but you know, gay Republicans are a thing. In fact, when Trump lost this last election, uh, one of the friends that I lost was a Republican lesbian who is furious at me for not voting for Trump, and says that people like me are responsible for everything bad
1: that's going to happen. You're a white woman, of course, you're responsible for everything bad.
0: No, it's a, it's on the left. No, on the left that white women are responsible and and. But this lesbian ex-friend of mine was saying that people that didn't support Trump are
1: uh-huh. responsible, so in a way uh-huh. she's less
0: she's less racist and sexist <laughs>
2: <laughs> and she's a republican a, a, like a a rabid one there are moderate republicans there are here in the state of Massachusetts, we have what we call Massachusetts Republicans, for example, our governor is Republican, but by many standards, he's, he would be a Democrat. Hmm. Well, I mean, this ex friend of mine was not moderate, by any means,
0: but she was lesbian, you know, an out out and proud lesbian, Trump supporter.
2: Yeah, we've all met gay people who are Republican or don't support gay rights, you know, think perhaps marriage is should be reserved for a man and a woman, hmm. but I am
0: interested in i don't know if it's too soon if we can talk about this the uh, surely not <laughs> is it too soon talk talk about the um, <laughs> oh what do you call it the the questionable alliances the- the danger dangerous liaisons happening oh in, like Around this,
1: <laughs> like with yes. Richard Dawkins retweeting the uh, Women's Human Rights Campaign.
0: Oh yes, thing? he signed that. No, no, Richard Dawkins is liberal. Oh okay. And WHRC is liberal, but this there's this uh, contention, contentiousness about feminists who are traditionally left leaning forming alliances with conservatives once again there was that event at the heritage foundation which i believe corinna you
1: refused to go to yes i didn't refuse to i simply didn't have it in my schedule
0: okay i thought that i thought that you like specifically made sure that you i mean i thought that there was a point right to not attending that i haven't
1: talked about this before nina but there was a a barricade a human barricade formed of radical feminists and conservative Christians who specifically tried to keep me out and I didn't want to press the matter.
0: Oh is that what that was? Yeah they were linked
1: arm in arm and I just I didn't want to push it.
0: Oh okay yeah I saw that I didn't realize that was for you.
1: Yeah. Good job. You thought they were just gonna do some line dancing but nope.
0: (laughs) Right well uh this this is made up. There was no such line. Corinna decided this on his own.
1: Yeah, I I just, I I didn't have time to do it. That's all.
2: Oh, okay. All right. Well, I went. Well, Nina, I actually have, I don't know if I call it an article, but a written dialogue coming out in the next issue of The Radical Notion. Are you familiar with The Radical Notion? Yes, although I have not seen one in real life. Ah, yes, the the printed journal, the printed feminist journal um, from... Uh, Jane Jane Claire Jones in the UK and many other brilliant women. So it's a dialogue about working with the right. And the other person is Amy Sousa, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She uh, tweets and at known heretic. And of course, she takes the position that working with conservative organizations and Uh, politicians is um, both effective and necessary. And I take the opposite position that it is not necessary and possibly not entirely effective either. So very happy to talk about that with you.
0: Yes. Well, one thing I was thinking about is how do you work with the left given the way like the Democratic Party and many Democratic politicians and the more extreme sides of what we call the left, like Antifa, uh, how they are treating women right now Um, and women's
2: rights. Yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult or impossible to work with them, which is what has sent some people uh, to the right. But I don't think that the difficulty of, of working with people on the left or building some of our own, you know, women women's own uh, platforms, you know, I think that's that's the way to go. We know from, you know, in the second wave, women were, you know, in a different situation, but there's misogyny on the left and women built many of their own newspapers and journals and organizations. And I think that's what women have to do now. And that's part of the reason I'm so happy to write this article for the radical notion, because I think it's like a sign of the rise of, of feminism again. That what's a sign? Oh, the the journal itself. Oh, OK. Thanks. Yeah, Sorry.
1: <laughs> sort of coming out of the the crucible of the last few years of internet activism.
2: Yes, and and we have seen, you know, we have seen organizations form. It's just unfortunate that some of them are allying and sharing messaging with conservatives. Feminists in Struggle is an organization that has specifically declined to share messaging with conservatives in the way that we've seen Wolf and um, WHRC do. Can you give
0: more explicit examples of how they're sharing messaging, as, as you say?
2: Well, one example would be, I think, that time that you went to, to D.C. with a rally at the Supreme Court between Wolf and Concerned Women of America. So that would be one example. Filing amicus briefs together with conservative organizations like, you know, Family Policy Alliance. Um, is another. WHRC was working with conservatives to determine, uh, to send comments to legislators about statutes or proposed statutes. So that kind of thing where you're either actually sharing messaging like with an amicus brief or like a rally at the Supreme Court. But also I, I think there's something that happens when people share counsel and you know my interest is specifically legal but when you start taking on frames that conservatives share that aren't necessarily feminist we already talked about a little bit about the Harris case but the amicus brief that Wolf filed in that case against the employee and in favor of the funeral home firing him simply for announcing that he was transgender is an example, I think, of taking legal advice from conservatives and ending up with a message or a position that is not feminist.
1: There's a, a certain ends that they're trying to achieve. And it seems like the the means to get there are, are not really, how, how to put this, there's not a lot of principles set down for how to get the objectives they're trying to attain. So however you can get it done, that's, that's sort of acceptable.
0: Mm -hmm. You mean what, what objective, the objectives of the right?
1: The objectives of creating a very clear delineation between sex and gender identity. And what's more of, of that would be to, Ensure that there's not any sort of legal protections on the basis of gender identity.
0: What do you think about just calling gender identity a religion and giving it well, yeah, just calling it a religion and giving it the protections and limitations of other religions?
2: Um, that would never fly politically, but conceptually, I think it works i'm I'm very much I, I think i I think I would support that. Um, you know, we live among many people, I'm an atheist, so we live among many people who who have beliefs about God, you know, that I would think are sort of magical or fantastical, and I, I call them Christian, and that's fine. I don't, t- you know, I'm not taking on their belief by acknowledging their religion, um, but I can be respectful of it, and, and I think I can, and we should be respectful of gender identity in the same way.
1: Well, what about trans people who disavow gender identity? In what way? Well, just like an atheist doesn't believe in the existence of God, somebody who holds what are, might be called gender critical beliefs, don't believe in the existence of a gendered soul, or I guess as it's called now, a gender identity. So if, if somebody is like me, a transsexual, but does not believe in gender identity, do we need some other type of aspect in the law to provide protections for me, even if I disavow gender identity?
2: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, you're, you're, like a, you're like a gender atheist.
0: He's an apostate, I'm an atheist. <laughs> um,
2: he, he did believe, and then he stopped. Ah, uh, so, but I think atheists would be protected for their lack of religion. Hmm. I think I... F-
0: yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if genderism were protected as a religion, then you wouldn't be at any particular risk having physically altered, you know, been physically altered in a drastic and radical way. People would either think that you're you know, trans, like you're in this religion, which is protected, mm. so fine. Um, or that you're not, which is also fine.
1: Wow, I can imagine where I might have to pretend that I have a gender identity in order to get protection.
0: You mean physical protection because of the what you've done physically?
1: No, le- legal protection. So I might have to pretend that I have a gender identity if I wanted to say, keep my job because because if genderism were
0: protected as a religion yeah physical like extreme body modifications are not protected i mean wouldn't are there are there laws against like not laws against but can you can you discriminate against people doing body modifications i think you can i think you can that's not a protected characteristic But if you do body
2: modifications for a specific religious reason, then it's okay? Mm, That would be an interesting case. But I've thought about this in terms of the sex-based dress code. Because I'm completely opposed to all sex-based dress codes. I honestly can't imagine any situation in which a sex-based dress code would be necessary. But if you had sex-based dress codes, and they are legal would you have to claim a trans identity if you wanted to use the opposite sex dress code? Right, if I'm, I'm female yeah. and I don't want to wear the skirt, I want to wear the pants, do I have to say I'm trans? Right.
1: Well, if you wanted to wear pants in public, I mean, obviously part of you wants to be male, right? That is true. <laughs> yeah. And
2: I had short hair for a really long time. Mm. that's
1: Mm -hmm. the
0: real telltale thing is whether your hair is short so Corinna's hair is long and my hair is short so you know which one of us is male and which one of us is female I sure do
1: it's clear as day yeah (laughs) back 10 years ago I was doing some research on on the Googles and I could not find oh boy (laughs) Um, it's it's the most reliable form of research I I do all my medical research on there too oh so do I I could not yeah it's it's a hundred percent trustworthy. I could not find any usage of the term gender critical in any way as it is used now and Hmm. in my research the first essay that I have been able to find that really establishes a definition or a set of principles related to what gender critical is, was written by you in counterpunch in a response to a trans activist named Samantha Allen.
2: Ah, uh, yes. I remember that.
1: I want to make the assertion that the term gender critical was if it was not coined by you at least you were the person to provide the first articulation of what that meant what do you think about that
2: it definitely wasn't me but I remember that article and I remember taking on the, the phrase gender critical gender critical feminist in contrast to turf which is what Samantha Allen had been complaining about in what I was responding to and you know, at the time, I, I it sounded really great because we're critical of gender as sex-based social roles, and I thought it sounded really clean and that it wouldn't necessarily r- limit. You know, that it could be like a, a broad, a broad church, and it certainly has become that. But I think it is also used very much by people who have conservative views now, and what they mean. By gender critical is that they're opposed to the sort of what is called gender ideology that comes from like queer theory
0: well i'm I'm opposed to the gender ideology that comes from queer theory but
2: I'm not on the right <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> that that is true in many ways so am I but I think it's it's become a term that isn't doesn't really necessarily mean gender critical feminist right it's taken out of the feminist context and is now used by many people who are definitely not feminist and then there's also you know within it gender critical and people also talk about gender abolition as as something different and certainly in this in our particular culture or society i would like to be a gender abolitionist but I think gender itself, it varies across cultures, right? So there may be, or or even are, cultures where there are sex-based social roles, roughly, but they aren't enforced in a really authoritarian manner. People have um, flexibility, and they're not punished for not conforming to those to those roles. And I think at this point in my thinking I want to leave space for that possibility because there are our our bodies are different and there's a a reproductive function that that females have and it takes a long time to grow a baby and then take care of a baby and it makes sense that females would be doing most of that work.
0: How would you define gender abolition?
2: Hmm. Well, it's not a term that I use for myself. But like I said, in our particular cultural context, I would like to be a gender abolitionist. And by that, I mean, I would like people to stop associating, you know, males and females with particular likes preferences emotions all of that stereotyping boys and girls because i i think it's really harmful
0: yeah i'm thinking about someone i talked to who said she's a gender abolitionist Mm -hmm. but it became pretty clear that she also really doesn't want men to wear dresses Mm. And and I thought that like well that doesn't seem like gender abolition to me like to me gender abolition seems like if you're a gender abolitionist then men can wear dresses and makeup and high heels and bras and panties and all that stuff no rules. I suppose- I suppose if gender were actually abolished, they would lose their fascination to autogynophiles mm. but still i don't I don't see how these two things can coexist do you like was I missing something if you're a gender abolition, would it just be like you abolish gender and nobody wears a dress or <laughs> only women wear dresses yeah. or yeah I mean how does that work
1: I, I like this idea Nina because if everybody around me was wearing a potato sack, I wouldn't feel jealous of anyone.
0: What if they had a nicer potato sack than you?
1: Like with a little hem on it and maybe some lace?
0: Well, really, what if they wore the potato sack better than you?
1: Ugh.
0: I mean, you went to a ren fair <laughs> in male garb.
1: And I d- you had I did.
0: certain envious looks from other trannies according to you. So,
1: Yeah, but my pot- my potato sack really fit well.
2: No rules. That's, that should be gender abolition. So All right. You know, men can wear dresses.
1: If even if we're all wearing potato sacks, or even if men were wearing dresses or skirts or what have you, or if women were wearing trousers, as ridiculous as that might sound, there would be a point maybe, though, and, and I think this is what you're getting at, Nina, is that some people wearing the potato sack might appear to be female when they're actually male or vice versa and that I think that the person who you were talking to was frustrated that they didn't know what was going on underneath the potato sack. They, mm. they said that they need to know what's going on with the potato sack in order for themselves to feel safe.
0: Well and right and so that's what gender is for gender is to give you lots of social cues so that everybody knows what's going on under everyone's potato sack. Uh, but you know, the, I didn't, I didn't mind her not wanting men to wear dresses. And I also didn't mind gender abolitionism. I mean, I, I can get behind gender abolitionism, but I just didn't see how these two things could coexist. They seem to cancel each other out.
2: Yeah, logically, they seem to. I have a young child, and i it's really interesting to watch them learn gender, kids learn gender, you know, because they have questions about it. And I found myself, I, I've you know, because we have all these conventions for identifying people. And so I've f- sort of found myself having to be more careful, because I want to be, about saying, like, that's a person doing something. And instead of always, you know, calling out, like, that's a man, or that's a woman. For the most part, it doesn't matter, right? Like, that's like that's the mail carrier, or that that person is carrying a box. And it's really it's really interesting to me to think about all of the ways that we create differentiation between men and women and, and, you know, always identifying people as men or women when it's not relevant or necessary at all. And we're very uncomfortable if we can't identify someone's sex or um, we can be lots of people are. It's, it's so interesting. I
0: think there's a reason for that. I mean, I I think that uh, women are, you know, at physical and some often social disadvantage to men, mm-hmm. and I think there may be instinctual reasons that women, especially, are are sensitive to this and and want to know. I mean, in my in my experience, it seems like, and I don't have. Data for this, but it seems like it is harder to fool women about sex than it is to fool men about sex. You can ultimately, you anybody can be fooled with you know enough magic, <laughs> but uh, I I seem to have met a lot more men who well, more men who are face blind, more men who just, they see long hair, they see woman, you know, they don't, they don't seem to be as attuned overall to a bunch of cues about sex. And yeah. there may be good reasons for that, right? Like women really may
2: need to know <laughs>
0: yeah. what sex other people are uh, for their own protection,
2: yeah, no, it makes perfect sense um, for, as you say, because, I mean, women, yeah, women are, are have to be much more aware of our surroundings and who's around us. And, um, you know, we're just trained to do that. And we don't even, I think we don't, a lot of us don't even realize we're doing it. That makes perfect sense. And, and, and it's also interesting to me, that a lot of people will have, difficulty um with butch women identi sometimes identifying them as women even when they have uh you know like very large breasts and it's you know people just aren't good at identifying sex without gendered markers we're we're so we you know we're so used to them and we use them all the time yeah and every every society has them yeah
1: I don't remember the, the source where I saw this, but there's a, an optical illusion I saw of a computer-generated face that is deliberately gender or sex-neutral, the way the face is generated, and just how the shading falls on the face can really make you change whether or not you see that face as a male face or female face.
2: Oh, that's so interesting.
1: So it can be very subtle.
0: Anyway, and in some ways, talking about this is arguing in favor of gender, which I generally find very oppressive. I mean, I find gender oppressive, right? Like I don't, I don't like it. I fight against it. It's stereotypes, want to break the stereotypes. And yet, it does serve a protective
2: function for women. Mm Mm-hmm. If you pay attention to people, I have been fooled. Of course I have. There are ways that we can we can identify sex in the potato sack if you're paying attention to people's bodies, not just their gendered markers, you know, like what we expect.
1: The There's a trans activist named Katie Montgomery, who's something of a shit stirrer, but mm. who posted something the other day saying that blaming the gender critical movement for making everybody so hyper vigilant about monitoring bathrooms that that butch women were going to become victims of over zealous bathroom policing. Do you think that Katie has a point of that about that? Uh I I have thought the same thing myself
2: before. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not a butch woman, so I can't speak from experience, but it makes sense. What do you think, Nina? Uh,
0: most women who are called butch women definitely look like women to me. Me too. And I don't know if that's just my magical female ability to tell people <sighs> sex. Or what? But no, I'm I'm not thrown off by short hair. I have short hair myself. I mean, I think it's hilarious what people think is tomboyish or androgynous. Yes. Because I'm just like, no, that's a woman. I mean, this, this non-binary trend, you know, this Demi Lovato, who I've never heard of before, except that she's non-binary, apparently. And I see these pictures of her plastered with makeup and... Well, okay, non-binary is not the same as butch, um, apparently. But I'm just like, well, that's that's femme right there. Uh, you know, it doesn't take much to be called butch. And you really, I don't know, most butch women don't look remotely masculine to me. In my life, I've met a few women, a very few, that have natural facial hair. And that's just like, you know, there's there's a moment of like, whoa, what's going on here? And I'm just like, oh, that's a woman with facial hair. But I don't know. I don't I mean, I dated somebody who was face blind and he was thrown off by everything, including me. Right. Like if I pulled my hair back, he would flip out because he needed to see long hair to see me as female. I mean, like that's how bad it was. So I don't know what it's like to go. I mean, I guess there's a kind of sex blindness. Some people, if they are face blind, maybe some people are sex blind, not very many. Uh, and maybe blindness is a spectrum, but i'm I don't seem to have
2: it so I Nina, it's interesting. I think we're talking about like some people have a very hard time identifying sex or some people will see women who don't have all the trappings of femininity immediately as men, and they have a hard time identifying them as women, whereas you are, or you are I, you know, do not. But I think that says something about the way that femininity is all of this added on stuff, like the, the long hair and the frilly clothes, and that when you take that away, um, you know, things are plain and not ornamented, that people default to man or male. In a in a just in a, in a very you know just very gendered way because they're they think in a they think in that gendered way and that's what they expect to see, and so they have a hard time seeing women as women without femininity.
0: I want to backtrack a little bit, thinking about men in dresses. So most of my adult life, I thought it was fine if men wear dresses and anybody can wear anything. But there is a part of me that is aware of autogynephilia. I've had some autogynephilic partners, and back when I was involved with them, I did think it was cool. I thought it was transgressive. I didn't know what autogynephilia was. But now I feel myself as being a prop in somebody else's fetish or participating unwillingly in somebody's fetish. And I did think about this in the funeral home situation that's like man somebody you know a bereaved person going to a funeral home it's not fair to make them a prop in some dude's fetish simultaneously it's like yes the the liberal in me is like anyone should wear anything and he can wear whatever he wants and the other part of me is like well but uh but maybe not
2: Mm. i'm sorry about your experience and I know that autogynephilia is real. I just don't think that we can know what other people are thinking or feeling. And I know we see a lot. Of, you know, I think there's a lot of extremism online. And I don't I don't believe that the majority of trans people or even trans women are autogynephilia. Like, and and I just I don't think we can know.
0: I think that ten years ago or fifteen years ago, I would have agreed with that, but the trans movement has been I think overwhelmed with autogonophiles over the last decade or so, and so they're they're they have dis- disproportionately grown. Yes, like that. So I would actually. I actually think currently the majority of trans-identified men, at least in the United States, at least in the West, are autogynophiles, which was not the case 20 years ago.
1: Hmm. What if beyond them being autogynophilic, what if more and more people in the trans community are simply sex ex- exhibitionists, maybe... Beyond just being AGP, what if they are, are even beyond that and are into exhibitionism?
0: Who are you asking?
1: I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there because <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that I keep seeing as an occurrence in the dialogue about trans women who have an autogynephilic motivation is that they are fetishists and that they are performing their fetish in public. But in my own experience, I've had friends who uh, would certainly take off all of the AGP criteria, but who wanted to be very cool in public and downplay being trans. They wanted to uh, blend in. They weren't getting off on it. They, they just really wanted to try to, try to, integrate without being very visibly trans. However, I also know some other trans people who want that to be the thing that other people see as the highlight of who they are. They really want that identity recognized and affirmed by as many people as possible, including strangers. So I'm, I'm not sure that that label of AGP really can be substituted as as the term fetishist very easily. But I I do notice that there are fetishistic displays by trans women. I just I just think that there's two different things that are going on that are being conflated. You you're not going to demand that I be kicked off the show now are you Nina?
0: <laughs> no, I'm just trying to understand. I'm I'm like are we are we seeing the same things? So you're saying that there's AGPs Because, like, autogynephilia is a paraphilia, also known as a fetish. But you're saying that there are autogynephiles who aren't fetishists? I don't understand how that works.
1: Well, we should probably have somebody like Blanchard or Michael Bailey give us a, a better detailed description of this. But I think that there's some discussion that agp beyond being a paraphilia may be a an orientation huh.
0: well we should we should have a discussion about that we should it just seems like if somebody if somebody has autogynophilia, um that they could you know keep it in the bedroom so to speak or keep it in in clubs or safe spaces rather than taking it in public, rather than taking it to their job. Uh, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with being autogynephilic, uh, especially if you, I mean, I think there's something wrong with being autogynephilic and denying it, but, uh, you know, if, if you're a man and you're turned on sexually. By the idea of yourself as a woman, then you do that when it's appropriate to be turned on sexually. You know, at home <laughs> with a partner, or with a you know, in a private community that's into that. You know, maybe a club that's for that. But if you're doing it in public, then uh, then you've then you then s- something
2: else is going on. <laughs> So are you saying autogynophiles should not be allowed to transition or to present as trans women because that's bringing their fetish out in public? No. Uh,
0: I mean, one reason that I like the idea of categorizing all of this as a religion is, you know, what I personally find troubling or questionable uh, doesn't mean that something should be banned, right people adults can do what they want with their bodies. and it's true we can't we can't read minds and and this is you know what I'm saying about about being a prop in somebody else's fetish or play that is also balanced with uh, you know wanting to be a gender abolitionist, you know, liking the idea of men wearing dresses. Except, you know, it's, it's like there's, there's these two things in, in tension with each other. But in actual practice, quite a few of these men in dresses are using strangers as props. But we don't know which ones they are. And uh, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm liberal enough to think that banning that would be a, a bad idea. And as far as people modifying their bodies,
2: adults get to do that for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there is any way to ban it. And I mean, there are some really unpleasant, um, quotations. Um, I think I saw some recently from, um, Anne Lawrence, you know, saying that, uh, turned on by being, you know, being referred to as a woman or treated like a lady, um, and that that's the stuff that I think a lot of people are objecting to and saying like you're bringing you're bringing the fetish out into the public and being a prop like you said Nina. Um but there's no way to stop that or control it unfortunately as you know as upsetting and objectionable as as we may find that if people are you know behaving appropriately in public then that's that's all we can ask of them right but th- right now
0: what's happening is the idea of what behaving appropriately in public is is changing I yeah. mean it used to be that transvestism was taboo and I thought that was really uptight and silly but now I think about a lot of taboos and I'm like oh that's why they had this taboo you know, like, t- taboos are constraining for people, but they do serve a social purpose that maybe is not clear until it's gone, <laughs> until it's not taboo anymore. And, of course, one one thing that I see happening is, you know, there's a, a real taboo against pedophilia, and from time to time, people push on that. And people are holding the line and people are also saying there's probably some truth to people not being able to help being pedophiles to, you know, maybe it is like an orientation just something that you're destined to have. And yet that taboo is a real good idea. Like, even if it's not fair, (laughs) you know, even if it's not fair to the poor people who can't help being pedophiles it's probably good that that taboo is in place
2: yes and that we do control and prohibit by law the behavior yes yes
0: yeah but there's issues with with pedophilia like child porn we can all oppose child porn that involves children, but like drawings of child porn, like what about drawn child porn where no children are actually involved? And theoretically, the you know pedophile consumer of the child porn is they're just reading a thing, so they're not harming anyone. Uh, there's this whole issue with uh, dolls, sex dolls that look like underage people. Uh, And it's like, well, should should pedophiles be able to buy these dolls and have simulated sex with child dolls? Is that, you know, is that their right? They can't help it, so you might as well give them some outlet because they can't help being born pedophiles? Or is that just like, no, that's no.
2: What do you do? What do you do? I love I love how deep and all the questions that you ask on this podcast.
1: Bess, what is your favorite color? <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's funny that you should ask Corinna because that is a question that happens in my life because I have a child. And I always say today my favorite color is, and today we'll say it's blue, but tomorrow it could be something else because I love all the Wait. colors. What
0: is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Ah, mint chocolate chip. Are
1: you kidding? <laughs> no. Hey, we're not we're not here to, to yuck people's yums, Nina. <laughs> Thank you, Karina. I have a question for you as a parent.
2: Okay. I
1: heard my my best friend tell her daughter recently, not to yuck people's yums. And yes. the, thing, the thing that I thought about was that, that phrase to me sort of can be taken as, you know, if somebody likes mint chocolate ice cream, don't make fun of them for it. But I hear it usually used in terms of not Expressing these sort of uh, opprobrium towards sexual kinks kink especially shaming. ones, yes kink shame, shaming don't yuck somebody's yum is is uh kink shaming so do you think that for girls who are or, or for children do you think that that's a, a good thing to teach them is not to yuck somebody's yums I, I feel like I, I feel like there's something that, like more nuanced that we should be telling kids. <laughs> You feel like that's not
2: an appropriate thing to say to a child?
1: I feel like it's not appropriate because <laughs> I feel like it's telling somebody, um, don't judge somebody else's behavior no matter what. Uh, like, discard um, your judgment.
2: There are, there. I know of at least one child children's book um, that is Yuck and Yum!, back and forth on the pages. And I think it's supposed to be teaching children like not to eat dirt and other gross things. Um, but perhaps they have that book. Yuck and Yama. Well,
1: th- maybe they're these girls are a little older, so hopefully their oh. their literacy is a little above the, the chapter <laughs> books at this point.
0: So Bess, do you feel ashamed because of my uh, what was it,
2: mint chocolate chip shaming? I mean, a little bit, but it's okay. Huh, that's a <laughs> lot of power I have. <laughs> Nina, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream?
0: Oh, gosh. It's usually a, a high-quality chocolate and sometimes vanilla. Oh, but, you know, I do this thing where I will grind up fresh cardamom seeds, like I have the cardamom pod and I'll take out the seeds and I'll grind that with pistachios and mix that with vanilla ice cream. That's very good too.
1: Well, this is oh, how wow. the 1% have their ice cream.
0: <laughs> Probably less than 1%. Yeah. <laughs> and not related to uh, income either, just related to whether you like cardamom and pistachio. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I, I like a, the Aldi super premium chocolate and the Aldi super premium vanilla after that. I'd say Aldi super premium chocolate. Yeah. All right. But you know what? Mint chocolate chips not that bad. I just have this association. Mint mint ice cream just reminds me of toothpaste and I can't get over it. Uh, I love mint everything. So
1: best we established that your favorite color can change day to day. So I'm gonna ask you this question and and uh, hope that you have A favorite answer for today, it doesn't have to be your favorite of all time, but is there a feminist right now who you think is doing particularly great work or writing wonderful things that you think everybody should follow up on and, and figure out what they're doing right now?
2: Wow, that's a really big question, Karina. Um... You know, I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you a book that I have started reading, um, and it is called uh, Detransition Beyond Before and After by Max Robinson. Um, It is a recent publication by Spinifex Press. Um, And in the book, she uh, relies on uh, some work from Sarah Lucia Hoagland, and Lesbian Ethics, which is one of my favorite feminist books of all time.
1: I think that's a great recommendation. I saw an interview that uh, Max did with uh, Grace Ludinsky smith recently, and it was fascinating. So I uh, thank too. you for that recommendation.
2: I also saw that, and you did an interview with Grace as well.
1: Yes, it's a very tightly connected community right now.
2: Well, there's a lot to talk about.
1: It seems like there's finally enough bravery or courage for people to come out and be willing to take the criticism from the, the big trans activist names to be able to have these conversations.
2: Yeah, it's kind of an exciting time.
1: It didn't seem that long ago that everybody was using, not everybody, you certainly weren't, but that many people were using pseudonyms to try to make their criticisms. But now it seems there's a lot more people attributing their names to their viewpoints.
2: We have come a long way, as they say. Do you
0: have, uh, in addition to... This article that you say, has it just come out in The Radical Notion or is it about to come out in The Radical Notion?
2: It is uh, sort of on the cusp of coming out. Some people in the UK have received their print copies. I am eagerly awaiting mine. And there will also be a PDF version that you can purchase online. It should be out
0: very soon. All right. Thank you for listening, Turfs and Trannies. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth Hungerford. Everybody attend to Elizabeth's writings.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.